able to do so. And then we see him as he, at the end of 1 Kings 18, as he stands on a mountain and, 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 and knows that God is going to bring the rain. And he says, he sends his servant multiple times to go and to see if there was an indication of rain coming because he knew that God was going to bring something significant. And then on the last try, the servant goes and he says, I see this, the cloud about the size of a man's hand rising up out of the water. And Elijah tells him, prepare yourself because the rain is about to come and God is faithful and does that. And we looked at how of the possibilities when we depend on God to do things that we could not do on our own strength, but that if we are, he is faithful to do and accomplish what we could not accomplish. And God is doing that. We are actively in the middle of seeing him do a work that we could not have imagined. And the indications as he continues to, to, to grow and to do a significant work among us. And for that, we are thankful to him. And we celebrate that uh, this morning. If you have a copy of God's word, I would love for you to join me in the book of Matthew chapter 25. Like the other weeks in this series, we will be moving around quite a bit into different places in the Word. And so I want to ask you that you just dig in, get ready. Now I'm going to go fast and we're going to move pretty quickly through some things for the sake of time. And, and so I want to ask you, if you will, if, 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 you, if you know, get a pen out, type it into the notes on your phone. If we're running through too quickly, we're going to put as much of the Scripture as we can on the back wall. And so you can kind of follow along on that. But I want us to, to, to move around and really see from the, the entirety of scripture this morning, what God has to speak on concerning the subject that we're going to look at. And so we're in week four of this series that we have called questions with clarity, where we have been looking very intensely into God's word and exploring these questions that may arise both in our life, in our faith walk, maybe even in the scripture that for many, uh, many of us have had the answers that have always been assumed, but maybe possibly not understood in the context of the, of the lens of the gospel and God's authoritative word. And so, so far in this series, we have addressed some pretty large questions. What is biblical church leadership? We've looked at, is church membership even biblical? And we looked last week uh, about what is biblical marriage. And so we have really unpacked quite a bit of uh, depth in the scripture. And so for our time together this morning, we're going to look at a topic that I believe in our generation and even possibly in the, in the younger generation as well, a topic that has been kind of a hot button in our culture, both in the church and also outside of the church and that is the topic of social justice. If we were to go home this afternoon and we were to turn on our TVs or we were to take a magazine or a, a newspaper and read it, it wouldn't take long to see evidence of social injustice or social justice issues happening all over our world. Whether it is specific situations in our borders like the happenings in St. Louis involving the case of the Ferguson police and Michael Brown or, or globally as we have followed, monitored closely the issue of, of, of ISIS and its persecution of Christians and believers and anyone that was opposed to their religion and we've seen the injustice that has happened there. We look at ongoing situations of, of abortion and global poverty and we see the, the need all over our world for people to have clean water and food to eat and we look at the our country that, that we're in and we see our consumption compared to how much we give and how we spend much more money on things uh, that are so temporary compared to helping those in our region in our world who are not as fortunate and so we look at those things and there's evidence all throughout our world 
And the fight for justice is being taken, taken up both by believers and non-believers alike. You're seeing organizations that rise up and, and are doing things completely apart and void of the gospel of Jesus. But yet they are taking up some of the same issues that the church is taking up. And so for our time together this morning, like I talked about how, how I approached it last week, I want to focus our time and energy on what social justice looks like for followers of Jesus. And specifically, how do we answer this question with clarity. What should the church's role be in social justice? What should the church's role be in social justice? You know, the call to, to social justice among evangelicals is not a new focus, but yet it is one that has received more and more attention as the presence of injustice continues to evolve and rise where it seems to be overshadowing and overwhelming justice. We see that often it appears as if injustice is taking over justice. And now when we refer to social justice, I was, I was talking to some guys in the back before the, the service this morning. This morning, you, you, we have to really be careful that we get a good understanding of what we mean by these terms. Because when we talk about social justice, we mean the desire to see justice carried out among these social issues. And so if you were to go and just take a very general definition uh, off, the, off of uh, you know, an, a, a dictionary, social justice would be defined as the fair and proper administration of laws conforming to the natural law that all persons, irrespective of ethnic origin, gender, possessions, race, religion, etc., are to be treated equally and without prejudice. So that's just a broad, general understanding of what social justice is. For instance, social issues such as poverty, the sanctity of marriage, racism, sex, slavery, and trafficking, immigration reform, orphan care, Persecution and inhumane treatment of individuals, care for widows, police brutality, war, health care issues, and the list can go on and on and on. And as Christians, we can see these headlines, many happening in our own culture, and yet, and, and many beyond our borders, where we see injustice taking place at such a great level, and our hearts are stirred, and our hearts are moved, and our hearts are motivated. We want to see something take place and, and happen. And, and, and we want to see justice brought to each of these situations. And so what happens is that we find ourselves in this pendulum swing. We find ourselves in this pendulum swing where we're trying to settle the tension between serving the poor and proclaiming the gospel. Serving the people that are victims of injustice or speaking of the God of justice. You know, do we help them or do we tell them? You know, do we be like Jesus or do we tell them about Jesus? Do we show them love or do we speak the truth in love? You know, do we fight for justice or do we tell them about how God is a God who wants to bring justice to all areas of life? And specifically, a question that comes up is do we engage in social action or do we engage in gospel proclamation? Many evangelicals talk as though personal evangelism and public justice are contradictory of each other or that one is the mission of the church and the other isn't. But yet I want us to see this morning that I believe that we have a role to not only proclaim the gospel, but also be active in fighting against social injustice in our world. You know, in many cases, we find ourselves gravitating to one, toward one mode of action or another. And so, so what happens is the church is we see this pendulum swing far to the left and we're all about action and showing Jesus to people. 
feeding the poor, ending sex slavery and trafficking, bringing clean water so that people have good water to drink and prevent diseases. But yet in doing so, what we end up doing is we seek to make life more comfortable here, but we're doing nothing to prepare them for life eternally. So in their temporary situations, we are attempting to, to, to make life better here on this earth, but yet we do nothing to prepare them for the life that is to come beyond this temporary life. And we come all, become all about social action when we swing this way, where we show Jesus to people but never tell them about Jesus. Where we feed the hungry and help the poor, yet we never meet their spiritual hunger and tell them the path to true wealth in Christ. We, we, we seek to fight justice uh, in, in, in sex trafficking and slavery. And we are all about, you know, fighting that battle on social media. And, and, and yet, we, yet we leave many in spiritual slavery to sin. We seek to bring clean water to those who do not have access to clean water. But yet, we never tell them about the living water where they will never thirst again. And so we serve in Jesus' name, yet we never mention Jesus' name. And some churches emphasize social justice without the call to personal conversion. And in doing so, we are not being faithful to the gospel. But then the pendulum can swing the other direction. And we can preach Jesus, but we have no display of a life changed by Jesus. We speak the truth about Jesus of being completely sufficient. He's all that you can need, and we proclaim that. But yet, we display with our lives that we need many other things to be truly satisfied. You know, we speak about bondage and sin, but we never demonstrate how Jesus breaks not only the bondage of sin, but can also free us in this life from addictions and materialism and things that hold us bondage in this life. You know, we speak the truth about Jesus being all that we could ever need, yet we demonstrate that that is not true. And so this morning in God's word, I want us to see how the church should be about justice because God has clearly shown us that we are to engage in justice because he is a just God. And so the short answer this morning, I believe, to how churches should settle this tension, resolve to, to, to find this sweet spot in this pendulum swing is quite simple. We follow Jesus. How do we settle the tension between action and proclamation? We follow Jesus. The example of Jesus. Because see, as we grow in Christ's likeness, we are concerned about the things that concern him. You know, Jesus, as, a, as king, he loves whole persons, bodies as well as souls. And so we, as we proclaim this calling to repentance, we must also, that Jesus calls his, we must also see that Jesus calls his churches to act on behalf of the poor, to, to, to serve the fatherless, the hungry, the those that are in sex trafficking and bondage and the unborn. You know, we holistically approach all social issues with the gospel because Jesus is completely redeeming the whole person. Well, you ask any Christian today, you ask any Christian today what they think about ending poverty, what they think about serving widows and orphans, and you will get a quick response in favor of fighting the battle. But then when you ask that same group of people about other issues that are, in our, that are social issues, you may get more of a hesitant response if it's not so clear cut. And so in our time, in our culture where social issues are creating dividing lines in our society, it simply isn't enough to focus on the issues that are easy to rally around as the church. 
It's simply not enough to focus completely on, on the, uh, the issues that we want to, to that the, the, everybody's kind of rallying around, but we want to begin with God and then we fight for all injustice. David Platt, once, David Platt once said that we must be, he said this quote, he said, we must be zealous to show that followers of Christ do not have options of picking and choosing which social issues we are going to apply biblical truths to. He went on to preach, he said, I'm zealous to show that the same gospel that compels us to combat poverty compels us to defend marriage and the same gospel that compels us to war against sex trafficking compels us to war against sexual immorality in all of its forms. And so you and I must see that personal holiness, when it becomes the motivation of us engaging in social justice, we see that our desire then is to be driven by desire to be more like Christ and his nature of justice in all things. So we see as a beginning point in Matthew 25, I want us to begin with verse 31. And I want us to just to see the character of God as we begin to paint this picture of how we are to be both proclaimers of the gospel, but then also be very active, I believe, in the, in the injustice that is in our world today. And in Matthew 25, we see the intensity that God places on the importance of serving very tangibly when he describes what the final judgment of man will be like. So read with me beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. In verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So we see there's a very understanding that there is good, that the shaping of who we are in Christ is going to shape our activity towards others. And let's continue to read verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison you did not visit me. And then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So let us humbly see through God's word this morning that as followers of Christ, we should care about all suffering we should care about all suffering, especially, especially eternal suffering. And when we are shaped by the gospel, we engage the Great Commission, we will encounter orphans and widows. We will encounter the poor and the oppressed. And through the gospel, we will be compelled to serve them as a tangible expression 
of the spiritual transformation we have experienced. So I want to begin like I have each week during this series. And I want us to lay some very clear foundations that I think in order for us to understand very tangibly how you and I are to engage in activity, I think there's some very critical foundations of who God is that we must grab onto and anchor into before we venture into how we actually go and serve. And here's the first one. Three foundational truths of why Christians should engage social involvement. First of all, Christian social involvement is rooted in the character of God. Christian social involvement is rooted in the character of God. I want to go a couple of places. Psalm 146, verse 7 through 9 says this. It says, He executes justice for the oppressed. Who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Social involvement is rooted in the character of God. He is the God who upholds the cause of the oppressed and he provides for the poor. His heart is for the liberation of the prisoner and he sustains the marginalized and the disenfranchised. Now it may appear as we look at God's word that that some some may, may think that God is kind of biased towards the poor. Or that he gives preferential treatment to the poor and the oppressed. But to assume such things is to miss the heart of God. It's not that God is biased to the socially oppressed or that God is prejudiced in some way or that he believes the poor should be more deserving because of their poverty. Instead, God is a God of justice. And so what he is about is being in opposition to all injustice. And he sides with the victims of oppression. So you see, this is not specifically about anyone's social injustice. It's about the heart of God for justice. So it's not a preferential treatment or or a, a value necessarily in oppression. It is all about that God desires to do something about those who are socially oppressed. And so because God fights for the oppressed, because God's character is to fight for the oppressed, he has an expectation that you and I will do the same. Let me read a couple other scriptures. Proverbs 31, verse 8 through 9. Open your mouth for the mute. For the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Amos chapter 5 verse 23 through 24. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God expects his people to share his concern for justice. In Isaiah chapter 58, the Israelites are complaining that God is not hearing their prayers. They're saying, God, you're not listening to our prayers. You're not not responding to our fasting. And Isaiah reveals to the people that the problem is the indifference of the people to the cries of the poor. Let's just read it. Isaiah 58 should be on the screen. Verse 3, why have we fasted and you see it not? They're asking, God, why, why is this? Why have you fasted and we see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of the fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. 
Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such that fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under them? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free. To break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And then we see in James chapter 1 verse 27 as we're going to look at in a couple of weeks. Religion that is pure and undefiled is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So may we begin by seeing that it is not because of guilt. It is not because of personal conviction supremely that we engage in social justice and involvement. But for Christians, moral obligations are not rooted in the nature of human beings. They are not rooted in the nature of human circumstances, but they are rooted in the nature and will of God. So our obligations and devotions are supremely to God. So we seek justice on behalf of the victims of injustice. And to do that is to care for the poor as those made in God's image. So Christian social involvement, first of all, is rooted in the character of God. But there's a second foundation that we need. And that is that Christian social social involvement is rooted in the reign of God. So it's rooted in the character of God. But secondly, it is rooted in the reign of God. You know, if you take the overarching story of the Bible, it is the story of God reestablishing, recapturing, and restoring his liberating reign over the world. It's a story about God restoring us in his image. So through Jesus, listen, we have been rescued from the penalty of sin. In this life, there are sanctification towards holiness. We are being rescued from the power of sin. And one day God will return, Jesus will return, and we will be rescued from the presence of sin. And so what we see here is our social involvement is rooted in the character and reign of God because he is restoring his reign. And so he is ushering this in, and this reconciliation that he is bringing brings both evangelism and social concern. You know, when the reign of Jesus is proclaimed, then people are called to respond in repentance. We are calling people to repentance, to turn from their rejection of God and submit to his reign. And so the reign of Jesus in our life brings not only moral and spiritual change, but a total change of life. He brings us to see a holistic restoration of life. And so his reign extends over over every area of our life. So our repentance and our submission to Jesus as Lord is to affect every aspect. And so issues of social justice will have social consequences as we call people to a life of submission to the reign of Jesus. And so this has huge implications that cannot be denied, that Christian social involvement is rooted in the character of God, and that secondly, it is rooted in the reign of God. But third, there's a third foundation, and that is that Christian social involvement is rooted in the grace of God. So it's rooted in the character of God, it's rooted in the reign of God that he is restoring, And thirdly, it is rooted in the grace of God. You and I are recipients of such undeserved grace. As followers of Christ, we are called to be gracious because God has been gracious to us. 
You know, we see this not only in the New Testament as we respond to the grace of Jesus, but we see this picture of being extenders of grace because of God's grace and provision all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, as people were recipients of undeserved redemption. The Israelites served the poor and they served the oppressed and those in captivity in light of their own experience of delivery from slavery that was of no merit of their own, but because God chose to graciously extend his hand towards them. The Mosaic law had rules set up to provide for the less fortunate through the gleaning process of the harvest. And so they would, they would go and they would, they would uh, as they harvested the field, they, would, they were called to leave some of it behind so that the poor and those who were not provided for could go behind them and gather so that they could have food. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 17 through 21, he says this, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over to them again. It shall be for the sojourner. It shall be for the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So we see that there was provision for those very tangibly as an extension of our understanding of God's grace. We see a similar reminder in the Mosaic Law that established a year of Jubilee that allowed for the release of slaves after seven years. So there was this response to their own experience of God's liberation in their own life. And so we see this precedence that is set in the Old Testament as by the Mosaic Law is very clearly laid out that you were going to be a people who were fighting for those who were experiencing justice. But then we also see the example in the New Testament, Luke chapter 14, verse 12 through 14. Jesus is describing for them a great banquet. And he says this, when you, have a, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So Luke instructs us that as followers of Christ, that our attitude toward the poor should reflect God's grace towards us. While you and I were outcast and oppressed and rejected, God welcomed us to the banquet. Despite our poverty, despite our lack of ability to gain right standing with him, to welcome ourselves through what we have accomplished, through the power of his grace in our life, he pulled a seat out for us at the table and said, you have received grace. Have a seat. In Luke 15, Jesus would continue to teach about our offering of grace to the outcast when he tells the story of the lost sheep. And he goes on to tell the story of the lost coin. And he tells the story of the lost son. And while these stories illustrate for us the initiative that God took to seek us out, it reminds us we must be reminded of the context in which these were written. As he tells about him pursuing the lost in this world, the context begins in Luke 15, verse 1 through 2, when he says this, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And so these parables are then birthed to speak to the gracious nature of God towards those in that time who were socially marginalized. And so where Jesus would have gotten flack for being willing to, to, to extend grace and spending time with those who were social outcasts, he tells these stories to illustrate that this is the nature of God towards the lost. Now, one reason that this is often offered for not engaging others with the grace of God, I think reflects our misunderstanding of being recipients of great grace. And that's this, someone may say, you know, I can't help the poor because it is their own bad choices that have led them to their current situation that they find themselves in. And while there's some truth on how to best help people, I pray that we just consider for a moment where we would be if God had taken that approach to us. If God had said, I will extend grace to those who deserve it, but because of your bad choices and because of the sin in your life, you have got yourself into this situation, but the grace of God extended to those situations. So we are driven to social involvement because of our understanding of the gracious nature of God towards us. Tim Chester once said this, the more we understand the wonderful grace of God to us in our need, the more our hearts will be open to the poor and to the marginalized. So I think that we must see that these three foundations about God never intends, he never intends for issues of righteousness and justice to be neatly divided into the personal and social, into matters of faith and matters of society. You know, we always act within the framework of the gospel of Jesus and the authoritative word of God, whether that is in proclamation or whether that is in demonstration. So us understanding these foundations of who, who God is, how do we settle this tension between social activity, the demonstration of the gospel, and evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel? And I think we see a few points that I want to highlight. First of all, social activity is the consequence of evangelism. Much like we're flowing out of the nature of who God is, I want us to look very tangibly and see that social activity as the church is the consequence of evangelism. I believe that one of the aims of evangelism since people are saved for the good works that God has prepared for them should be that we are involved in social activity. I want to read, turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 35. I want to read for you what the church looked like in that time. Evangelism was happening. Jesus came to proclaim the good news of who he was. He came to call people to repentance. There was a very much a preaching of who he is. He says that we are to go and to teach. At the end of the day, people, evangelism is about proclaiming news. You can't just, you can't demonstrate news. You have to proclaim news. And so we see here in Acts chapter 4 that this church has been shaped by this good news. So look at verse 32 through 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So they had been evangelized. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Proclaiming. And great grace was upon them all. But look what happened in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. It wasn't that they said there was not a a, a, a needy 
need out there. It says there wasn't a needy person. There was no one that had a need. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. So before a need was even brought up, they brought what they had, they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The amazing thing about the early church is that they were, that through evangelism, through the experience in Christ in a very real way, they were willing to give whatever it took to address the social issues in their community. So they were shaped and understood what Jesus had accomplished for them. And so they wanted to do whatever it took to engage so that social justice took place. Now, why was this? Because through Jesus, their heart was for a holistic approach to serving the poor, whether that be spiritually or very tangibly. Now, the early Christians were given up, giving up everything. Yet when we look at the current landscape of our culture, the radical nature of God and, and the radical nature of the early church, it just doesn't make sense to us. You know, I believe that through the nature of God and the example of the early church, that followers of Jesus who have been rescued from great spiritual poverty will be active in social activity by meeting physical needs and fighting for injustice. Because of the grace of Jesus, there should not be more than a billion people in the world who are hungry without any way to be filled. And this is not guilt-based teaching. I'm telling you what the nature and the heart of God is. There should not be 1.3 billion people in our world today who live on less than a dollar per day. Let's put that into perspective. I'll spend three bucks on a cup of coffee today. And for many, 1.3 billion people, and I love coffee. I'm not saying don't go buy that coffee today. I'm just saying we should be involved in social activity because 1.3 billion people live on less than a dollar a day. There should not be 2 billion people, 2 billion people in our world today who live on less than $2 per day. There should not be 20,000 children who will die today from starvation and other preventable diseases. There should not be 3.4 million people per year dying from water-related disease. I read a, a, a Stanford University research project a few years back. And when I read their findings, this is done by a, just a secular university. They were looking at studying Christians' influence on the global need of social issues. And their findings found that if professing Christians, now we understand there's, there's a difference between followers of Jesus and those who just profess some type of religion. But as best as they could research... If professing Christians would give 10% of their income, taking into consideration the economy of, our, uh, of those who are believers, in a two years time, we could eliminate global starvation, provide education, and universal access to clean water and sanitation globally. So as you and I seek to be active in one respect to evangelism, and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, let us also see that this should lead us to social activity. Jesus never sent away the hungry with a verbal word of be warm and, uh, to, to, to be warm and filled without a compassion to serve them both in body and soul. Jesus never sent away the hurting and the diseased 
with just a word about spiritual healing. But he met their spiritual and their physical needs. So social activity, I think, is a result of evangelism. But secondly, social, act, social activity can be a bridge to evangelism. As we look at the nature of God, we look at this tension between evangelism and social activity. I believe that social activity can be a bridge to evangelism. As we serve the poor, as we fight for the oppressed, as we seek justice on social issues, the way in which we tangibly serve can open the door and create an opening for the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus. This was the character of Christ in the way in which he served. Let me give you a few examples from his life that demonstrates this. In John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman. She was an outcast. Her ethnic background... Her ethnic background caused her to be an outcast. She was a half-breed Samaritan. Also in this culture, she was not only an outcast Samaritan, but she was a Samaritan woman. And women in general during that time faced a lot of injustice because of their, how they were treated. You know, Jewish people hated Samaria so bad that they would travel multiple miles around to keep from having to go the straight route through Samaria. And so in this culture, a woman from, Samaritan, from Samaria, not only was she a, a Samaritan woman, she was also an adulterer. So there are many levels of, of, of rejection and outcasts that she faced. And what does Jesus do? He begins a conversation with her. Something a Jewish man would never do. He asks for a drink of water from her jar something that would have been seen as vile because of their view on Samaritan and women. But Jesus goes in. He doesn't go right to the issue of her sin. He doesn't treat her as an outcast because he could have and she would have expected it. But instead, he breaks down social barriers and begins with a simple conversation. But... It also leads him to be able to proclaim the truth. So social activity can create a bridge for evangelism. In Luke 19, we meet Zacchaeus, the wee little man in a tree. Zacchaeus was despised. He was one who would have been, who would have faced injustice because of his giving of injustice to people. He was wealthy, and though he had all he needed physically, he was a social outcast because of his profession. He would have no interaction with people. They hated him because he was abstracting money from them through taxes, and then that was fueling the army, the Roman army, which was oppressing their nation. And what does Jesus do? He says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I'm going to have lunch with you. And what does Zacchaeus do? Jesus Zacchaeus, through this interaction, he would eventually confess his sin and promise to correct the injustice that he had given to others many times over. And we could go situation after situation about Jesus meeting physical needs and healing those who were sick. But we see that these would open the gateway to meet spiritual needs. Social activity can be a bridge to evangelism. They hold hands. Then there's a third thing, and that is that social activity not only 
is the aim of evangelism and, the, and maybe a bridge to evangelism, but it is the partner of evangelism. What do I mean by this? You know, evangelism gives purpose to social action. Evangelism gives purpose to social action because the gospel changes people's attitudes and worldview as they receive the grace of Jesus. And then they submit their life to the reign of Jesus. And then we serve others out of the truth of Jesus. Now, on the other hand, social activity can gain the opportunity for us to proclaim the gospel. But the key to see here is the partnership between social activity and for us to go and to proclaim the gospel through evangelism. And I believe that our motivation lies in the end goal, and that is the glory of God. The glory of God. Paul writes to the church at Colossians, and he says, whatever you do in word or deed, can you hear me? Whatever you do in proclamation and demonstration, do everything in the name of God of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The ministry of Jesus demonstrates the essential activity of both social activity and evangelism. Now, I want to I end with three quick points that I think bring this to a very practical challenge to us today. So, we've seen the character of God. We've seen the nature of the, the, the partnership between evangelism and social activity, not only the, 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 the relation, but we've seen the, the importance and the necessity of both. I think we see a couple of, three, a couple of uh, conclusions. That's first of all, it's social action and evangelism are distinct activities. Let's not confuse the two and, as being synonymous. Social activity, social action, and evangelism are distinct activities. We are called to serve the poor. We are called to fight for justice. We are, we are called to uphold the sanctity of life. But our passion as we demonstrate these things must hold hands with the calling to proclaim the reason behind our actions. Can someone who is not a believer look at your life and see a difference? I sure hope so. I hope that your life is so shaped by the gospel that you will look differently. But eventually your different look must be proclaimed and explained by a word. And the truth of who Jesus is. Your relevance to culture doesn't mean that as we are being led by the Spirit, we hide the gospel from the world. No, we hold it high. We proclaim it. Jesus did that. He found favor with man, but yet he was very much about exposing the darkness and not adding to it. In Isaiah 52 verse 7, Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring, brings good news, who establishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And for future, for the sake of time, I can't go here, but Romans chapter 10, verse 8 through 16, it, it goes in there to say, how are they going to even believe unless they're told? Unless someone is sent tangibly to take the good news, unless somebody says it, how will people be able to respond to the truth of Jesus? And he ends by saying, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So may we see that we are to be involved in social action, but social action cannot replace evangelism. They are two distinct things. Second conclusion, and I believe that proclamation is central. Let me explain this for just a moment. Now, while we can see that evangelism and social action are partners, we must see that we have a message that the world needs to hear. 
Only through a belief in Jesus will we take seriously the global problem of poverty. Only through Jesus will we correctly fight for the sanctity of life and fight against prejudices and racial injustices. You know, see, the greatest need of the poor and the helpless and the oppressed is to be reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. That is their greatest need. I used to read this quote, and it's a good quote. St. Francis of Assisi used to say, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. But I don't believe this will do. You know, I read this quote that I thought was very solid in our understanding of this point. But social action can demonstrate the gospel, but without the communication of the gospel message, social action is like a signpost that points to nowhere. Without the proclamation of Jesus, social action is like a signpost that points to nowhere. If we serve others and we fight for justice, so that we do good works among people. We run the risk of people liking us, but possibly not liking Jesus. Or maybe people knowing us, but not knowing Jesus. And finally, as I've said earlier, I believe that evangelism and social action are inseparable. The grace of Jesus must be proclaimed, but a life impacted by the grace of Jesus must be proactive in service. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you motivated to fight for the injustice in this world out of an understanding of the heart of God? Or are you motivated by guilt, information, maybe because you feel overwhelmed by the needs that are out there, maybe out of anger, maybe we respond to some social injustice out of anger? But do we see this morning that we are to engage social issues because the heart of God is to be just? This has a shaping for you and I. You know, may we not be a people who fight against poverty, but then we worship material things. The heart of God would not allow that. May we not be a people who fight against prejudices, but then are unwilling to offer the grace of Jesus to people regardless of who they are and what they've done. May we not be a people who fight against sex trafficking, but then spend our alone time looking at pornography. May we not be a people who fight against these things, but with our lifestyle, we value others things. So I pray this morning that we will be, find ourselves being a people who have been so transformed by the gospel that we engage in social activity because we see the heart of God for the rescue of the oppressed and the captive. So church, may we feed the hungry, may we clothe the naked, may we fight for the oppressed, but may we also provide them with the bread of life for their spiritual hunger. The spiritual covering of Jesus for their brokenness and to see the nature of Jesus in Luke 4 chapter 18 through 19 when he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind 
to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. May we be about social activity and proclamation. May we as a people not seek to make this life more comfortable for the oppressed, but send them to eternal life completely unprepared. Let's be about both. Let's be about being shaped by the gospel of Jesus and proclaiming it, but yet serving people very tangibly out of our understanding of the nature and grace of God. Let's pray together.